All right, everyone, welcome back to Dirt Talk. I'm your host, Aaron Witt, head of BuildWit, on a mission to make the dirt world a better place. Now, usually, I have a guest accompanying me, either someone we work with, you know, company president up until this point, or Dan Briscoe, who works for us. But today, to uh, what is probably to most of your disappointment, there's no one with me. It's just me. So if you don't want to listen to me talk, if you are hoping to glean some inspiration and educational content from a construction executive by listening to this podcast, this is not the podcast for you. In all honesty, I'm recording this podcast mostly because I'm traveling this coming week and I have no one scheduled for the podcast. So due to my terrible ability to schedule and plan and be organized and responsible, I am playing catch up here and thought I'd just hop on here. But the good news is I do have things to talk about. I am going to talk about my construction experiences. I have talked about them quite a bit online um, in posts over the past few years here and there, but I don't think I've ever laid out the entire narrative, Uh, basically gone down the list of my resume and kind of explained what my experience was before I got involved in BuildWit. And a lot of it has, it impacts everything we do at BuildWit these days. So it's all really important. I reference my experience almost daily with all the different jobs I had. And I just kind of wanted to explain how I got started and and I guess how how I got to where I am today uh, and how I got to even starting BuildWit. So we're going to go back in time, well before BuildWit, and I've talked about how everything started as a kid. I don't want to talk too much about my my childhood and because there wasn't really construction or dirt in my childhood. One of the first questions I ask a lot of the folks we have on is, how'd you get started in all this? And naturally, almost everyone said, well, my dad was in the industry or my grandpa was in the industry or I had an uncle in the industry. It's, it's really that's really the majority of everyone in this industry, which is cool. It's um, rooted in family. It's rooted in, you know, following the footsteps of those in in front of you. It's really special, but I've said this over and over again, and hopefully we actually have him on the podcast soon. My dad was an attorney with no construction, nothing to do with construction whatsoever. So growing up, my only exposure to the industry was really just driving by construction sites in the car. And and I had my sixth birthday party at the cat dealership, like I talk about a lot, but that was it. It was kind of a fluke. It wasn't because we were friends with, you know, the dealer principal or anything like that. It was, you know, my dad was working with them at the time and, and was able to to get us in for for that birthday party. And apart from that, it was just I just dug holes in the backyard uh, all the way up till college. I, I always had a portion of the backyard dedicated to digging where I would just dig holes at every single house we ever had growing up was my, you know, digging area. And I'd go out and, you know, get a small shovel when I was little from Home Depot and then just normal size shovels when I was a teenager and I would dig. And then when we'd go to the beach, the first stop would be the hardware store to pick up a shovel because all I wanted to do was dig. And so I would go home at the end of the night after uh, going to the beach and my back would be sore as hell. Be laying on the couch, you know, 12 years old because I just dug holes all damn day in the sand for for no reason. I just, that's what I like to do. 
that's my construction DNA is there's not DNA there. It was just a natural attraction to the industry. But I didn't even think about construction as a career until something happened. And again, I've told this story, but I really just kind of want to go go chronologically here. So I had been going up to a place in Montana, Red Lodge, Montana. My friend's parents have a beautiful property there. And then their friends have, you know, a thousand or a few thousand acres outside of town. They have cattle and, and all that, a really beautiful property. And I was over at my friend's house one day in Phoenix, and I was talking about my upcoming aquarium project, which was my, my love and passion before all of this happened with the dirt stuff. And I was converting my freshwater aquarium to saltwater. And anyone that's ever done that before knows it's a terrible terrible decision. It is stupidly expensive. It takes up a stupid amount of time and I needed money. I did not have any money. My parents, you know, they didn't just give me money for things. So I needed a way to come up with that money. And, and that was, I was 14 or 15 at the time. So I couldn't legally get a job and I was in Phoenix, Arizona. You can't really work in a big city like that for any significant amount of money until you're 16. So, and I got a job, uh, coincidentally or not so coincidentally at an aquarium store when I was 16 years old. But before that all happened, I was talking to my friend's dad about this and I get a call from him later that day. And he says, I have a business proposition for you. And again, I'm 14, maybe 15 years old, you know, beginning of high school. And he says, I will loan you the few hundred dollars you need for your aquarium. And I said, okay, you know what, what, how do I pay you back? And he said, well, just come up to Montana and work for me. It'll be, I'll pay you $10 an hour. So you'll, you'll work the amount of hours you're borrowing the money plus interest. And I think he charged me like 20 or 30% interest. It was an exorbitant rate of interest, but I didn't understand the concept of interest at the time. And I said, absolutely. If you'll give me money now, which is extraordinary, they give you money now and then I just paid off later. It was incredible. So it was my first foray into the world of debt. And I thought it was spectacular until I started to actually understand that I did have to indeed pay it back. So a few months went by. I got my aquarium. It was absolutely cool. And it all worked out great. And it was time for me to go to Montana. I went up to Montana. And it was the first time in my life where I just had to work my ass off. I worked 10, 12 hours a day mowing the lawn, whacking the weeds, cutting down trees, just total solitude. I wasn't working with anybody. It was just me, a weed whacker and countryside. And that's what I would do every single day, five, six days a week. And, um, and, and that was what I did for, uh, I was like six weeks or so. So I paid him back and came home with an enormous wad of cash. Cause they, they paid me in cash, which was sweet. So That was my first experience into quote unquote blue collar work. And more importantly, that summer was super important in my career trajectory because the guy I was working for, my friend's dad was, he's very rich. He's, he's extremely wealthy. You wouldn't know it by, by looking at the guy. He doesn't live a a lavish life. He still wears the same old clothes. He doesn't drive fancy cars. He, He just doesn't live an extraordinary life by any means, but he has a ridiculous amount of money and his connections, the people he knows are, are unbelievable. So every week, somebody important would be there. It would be a world-class architect 
you know, one week. It would be a an enormous, you know, successful businessman who sold his company for hundreds of millions of dollars the next week. It would be a heart surgeon the next week. I kid you not. It's it's people like that. And I would just sit there. So after busting my ass 10, 12 hours, I'd get home, shower, get the green, you know, grass all over me or off me. And I would just listen to these guys talk. And they would sit there for hours and talk about life and politics and finances. It was just extraordinary. I would never ask questions or anything. I would just kind of absorb what these guys had to teach. It was the first time in my life where I could just sit there and get like this enormous intimate TED talk that was just, you know, for me, it, it was amazing. And through that summer, it kind of drove home that, you know, th- these guys, these very highly accomplished guys, they they really enjoy what they're doing. They're They're passionate. They love their work. And were they passionate to begin with? No, not necessarily. But their love of their work is why they've put up with the shit they have, is why they've worked the hours they have, is why they are where they are. It's not an accident. If every single person that's highly accomplished follows these similar pathways, values, concepts, it's okay, there's something to that. And that's what I need to start thinking about. So it really got me thinking, I need to find a job, a career that is aligned with who I am and what I enjoy. And so I did this. I went up there another summer and worked and reinforced those same concepts. I got a job at the fish store and I call it the fish store. It's an aquarium store. I wasn't selling like, you know, salmon. It was like tropical, delicate tropical fish. And I basically just cleaned aquariums every afternoon after school and then on the weekends. But this was in my mind that I needed to find something that just aligned with what I enjoyed and and who I was. I still wasn't thinking construction. Now, when I was 18, you know, when I was 17, but I was a senior in high school, it was the fall. There was a construction project that started in my neighborhood. It was extraordinary. They were putting in up to a 108 inch concrete pipe. 108 inches, real big pipe, especially in a narrow that it was a narrow neighborhood street. So just two lanes and they had a freaking 385 out there digging 25, 30 feet deep, setting this pipe almost 30 feet deep, 108 inch concrete pipe next to multi-million dollar houses. It was just, the, the, the job was insane. I would have never wanted to be the superintendent on this job because they just got bitched at by wealthy moms that had nothing better to do than complain about the 385 sitting in their front yard, which is understandable. I wouldn't complain about a 385 in my front yard. I'd be pretty stoked about that, but I can understand why that would be an inconvenience for some of these people's lives. So I would go out there every afternoon after high school and I would just sit there and look at these guys and watch them work because I'd never seen an excavator that big. I'd never seen underground construction before. I'd never been on a construction site. I had never stepped foot on a construction site before and I would watch them. And it was extraordinary. And I saw every single truck rolling through there because they couldn't, they didn't even have enough room for the spoils. So it was, you know, a dump truck, Super 16 would drive up. The excavator would load the truck with the material that it was digging out of the, out of the trench. And it was rocky material. So it had just a gnarly, gnarly rock bucket on it with the teeth, you know, all the way out, out of the bucket as well. It was just cool looking filling up the trucks and then the trucks would drive off and they would either go to the other end where they were backfilling and just dump the same material in there or they would haul it off because as you lay pipe, you do have 
uh, excess material because you have to find somewhere that pipe takes up volume where there used to be earth. You need to find a place for that earth. So uh, they would either haul it off or, or use it for backfill. And every single truck, beautiful brand new Peterbilt trucks, Pearson Construction Corporation was on the side of them. And I, for whatever reason, had the idea one day to call Pearson Construction Corporation. I Googled Pearson Construction Corporation, found some articles about them. Oh, yep, sure enough, it's owned by Rich Pearson. Of course, you know, it's a construction company. So, of course, it's the guy, you know, one guy, old guy, whose last name's on the front door. And I called up the just the general phone number. I say, hey, you know, may I speak with Rich Pearson, please? And they said, well, who the, who the hell are you? And I said, well, I'm just a kid and I want to talk to Mr. Pearson about how he's done this because I find it fascinating. And I got through to Rich Pearson and explained who I was, high school kid, been looking at their site, and I just want to come down to his office and, and meet him. And he said, okay. So a few days later, there I was in his office, and, and I just kind of explained my situation. Hey, I know I need to find a job. And I know college is coming up and I need to decide what even to study. I'm going to college. I know that much. And, but I just, I don't know what to study. And what did you do? How did you do this? And eventually towards the end of the conversation, can I, can I have a job with you guys? And I didn't really go into that conversation. You know, I am going to get a construction job. My parents were not, you need to go get a job. It was just, if I want to do this, I need to get out there. And the way to be out there every day is to just get a job out there. So I asked him, I said, hey, can I, can I get a job? And, and I don't even know what the job would look like. I don't even know what I'd be doing, but can you hire me on? I have no experience. You know, I had nothing to offer the guy. So he said, you know, listen, kid, you're, you're 17. I legally can't even hire you till you're 18 because the construction industry, you can't hire till you're 18, or at least that was the case in Arizona. I don't know what the, the laws are everywhere else, but let me know when you turn 18 and we can talk. And then I, you know, from that conversation, I at least figured out, okay, civil engineering, I'm going to go study civil engineering. I joke that I didn't understand how much math was in engineering. I didn't understand how much math was in engineering. I genuinely, no one told me it's all math. It's all calculus. It's all statics and dynamics and deformable solids and circuits and statistics. The coursework is brutal, but no one told me that up front. And I was the only kid not to pass the advanced placement calculus test in high school. I was the worst student in my calculus class. Everyone was way better and way more intelligent. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It, math, I, it doesn't click with me. And yet, out of my own ignorance, I decided to pursue the most math-heavy major there is, which was civil engineering. I later switched to construction engineering, which is pretty damn similar. I email Rich Pearson after I turned 18. I turned 18 in February and I emailed Rich Pearson in March and said, Hey, haven't forgotten about this. Can I please have a job? A few months went by. Finally in April, he relented and he said, okay, we'll start you as a general laborer. We'll pay you 13 bucks an hour. And then you'll start, you know, a week after high school graduation. And I said, Hell yes. So there I was. I had no idea what I was getting into, but I knew I needed some jeans. I knew I needed some high-vis t-shirts. I knew I needed some boots. So I went down to Sears and got their only 
you know, shitty steel toe work boots that they had. They were like Timberland or they were terrible. I got some jeans from the target next door. And then I bought some socks and high vis t-shirts from the local swap meet. I showed up on my first day. They gave me a vest and a hard hat and a shovel. And there I was on the same job I'd been looking at that entire last year of my high school career. And I was at the tail end of the project. So I was just a few minutes down the road from my house and in the middle of the neighborhood that all my friends were in. So my friends would quite literally be driving by most days waving at me while I was out there busting my ass in the middle of the Phoenix summer, which really sucks. I mean, 110, 115 degrees. You start at, you know, 530, work till just early afternoon because it's just too hot past that especially on asphalt pavement, you know, it gets to a a lot warmer than just the air temperature when you're standing on asphalt all day. And uh, I was on all Mexican crew. Everyone else was uh, Mexican. It was Juan and Chico were the two, two guys I worked with. They didn't speak amazing English, but they, and the way these guys work and what I learned is You have to prove yourself before expecting anything in return. So if you go bust your ass with these guys, if you're in the ditch, if you're in the trenches with them, literally in the trenches with them, doing whatever they need, trying to anticipate their needs before they need things. So, oh, yep, they need soap for the end of the pipe. I'm going to have that ready before they even need it. I'm going to have the rigging set up. I'm going to have their shovels ready to go. Trying to just understand what their needs were and trying to fill their needs. If you do that, if you serve them, They will look out for you. They will take care of you. They will make sure you're safe. They will teach you. They will take you under their wing. And most importantly, they will teach you every bad word in the Spanish language. And that's what I got to learn was all the bad words, how to tell my boss to, in Spanish, go fuck himself. And it was awesome. I loved it. And I just loved working with such hardworking people. They just kept their heads down and they just worked. They didn't complain. They just got it done. There was no excuse. There was nothing. And I, I developed such enormous respect for not just blue collar people, but you know these, these guys that come from other countries to the United States and bust their ass only for to give their kids better opportunities than they, they ever thought possible in their lives. It was really cool. And then I was also under a foreman called Eric with an A, I met Eric a few years later on another job, just coincidentally, which is kind of cool. And uh, he was one of the, he's just like, you know, pictured typical construction foreman, just a hard ass and would, if you fucked up, he'd let you know, it, it would not be a secret that, you know, you, you messed this one up, but he also, you know, it was, it was tough love. It was that tough love mentality. And he really cared about us. He really cared about me. And, and he really spent a lot of time teaching me. So that first summer, it was a huge learning experience. I, if you don't have tough skin, good luck in construction. You need very tough skin. You need to be somewhat tough mentally. You need to go in without you know any expectations. You need to go in with total humility. You need to go in willing to bust your ass. But if you do all those things, if you mirror those around you, if you if you try to learn, if you ask questions, if you're you're as hardworking as anyone else is you're going to gain that respect and you're going to learn really damn fast. So I got to see how pipe went in the ground. I got to see how a project comes together and I got to basically close out the project I had been looking at for the past year, which was again, so, so cool. 
And until I just moved to Tennessee, I would drive by the catch basins I helped to build and was actually inside stripping the forms out of years ago. And even as something as stupid and simple as a catch basin, I still have that feeling of I built that damn catch basin. No one but me has ever thought about that catch basin and no one gives a shit about it, but I did that and it's really damn cool. And every time I drive past it, when I'm with someone else, see those over there, those, those holes in the side of the street, I helped do that. It's an immense sense of pride, which is why I understand why this industry is so proud. So that was summer number one. Did I see Rich Pearson? Maybe once. If that, I don't even know if I saw him the whole summer, but I, it just opened my eyes to this new world and I fell in love with construction even more and I knew it was the path for me. So I went into my, I guess my freshman year of college after working four months in you know middle of summer, Arizona on a pipe crew, all Mexican crew with just a totally new sense of what hard work was, what humility actually meant and what my career might look like one day. So I go through freshman year and at a career fair, I spoke with all the companies there and, and it was all the heavy construction companies that were primarily local in the Phoenix area. One of them was Markham and Markham was a, they were bigger than Pearson Construction Corporation, but they did similar work. They did site development, you know, they had scrapers, they did a lot of pipe. They, it was, it was a cool, cool company. I'd say, you know, mid-size company. And now they have a few hundred people working for them. I think they might even be up to like 500 people. So they're pretty good size now. And um, met a guy there who was, you know, an engineer and they're, um, I don't know, he was like there, he, he worked on a lot of proposals and did a lot of alternative delivery work. And I told him, you know, hey, I just, I was just a laborer for all summer. And that's immediately, it just puts you ahead. And I, I get frustrated when kids go to college and they don't work until maybe their last summer, if that, because they're just missing out on the whole, a huge opportunity. And if you're going to college and you're not working during the summers, you're a complete idiot because in college, you're at the exact same place as everybody else. So you're on the exact same path. You're studying the same things. You're taking the same classes. You're no different than anyone else with that degree. And you think your grades matter. They don't matter. No one gives a shit. What does matter, what does set you apart is real world experience. So if you come to them saying, yeah, I want a construction job. And also I was just a laborer you're way more valuable to them than anyone else. Even if you have a 2.5 GPA and the next guy has a 4.0, they don't care, especially in the construction industry. GPA really does not matter. And I'm proof of that. I had a terrible GPA. So I came to them. Hey, I just worked for Pearson. Yeah, we know Pearson. I kind of am looking for the next thing. Well, you know, maybe we could get you a job here during the school year and then maybe you could work for us out in the field uh, in the upcoming summer. So I started working for them during the school year. I don't think I had classes my first semester on Fridays. So I would just go, you know, every Friday to their office all day, eight or 10 hours. And I'd work in the, you know, safety department or work in HR, just basically taking care of paperwork. And, you know, I just did whatever I was told to do and did a little bit of, little bit of estimating, a little bit of proposal work, but it was really just busy work, administrative work taking care of safety records and reporting and, and all that nonsense that's kind of behind the scenes in, in the construction industry. Summer came again, 
And I said, yeah, I want to go out into the field. Great. We'll get you back out into the field. And I was put on the first month. My job was to backfill water line. So I was in the ditch with a jumping jack. Eight, you know, 10 hours a day. Again, middle of summer, Arizona. Pretty damn far from home, you know, in Buckeye, which was, I'd never even been to Buckeye before. And that's all I did was go back and forth. And so what would happen was they would dig the trench. They would bed the bottom with AB, aggregate base materials. They refer to it as in Arizona. They call it something different in every damn market you're in, but it's called AB out there. So they'll bed the bottom of the trench with AB. They'll lay the pipe and then they need a foot of cover over the water line with or or uh, the water line or the sewer line, whatever they're laying, a foot of cover with AB as well. And it's just kind of loose there. And you need to make sure it's really compacted around the pipe before you backfill all the way back up to grade or else you're going to have settlement. As water starts to permeate that, it's going to settle. And if that if the earth starts to settle underneath structures, underneath houses, underneath roads, curb gutter, that kind of thing, there's major problems. So it's, it's really serious that it's it's compacted very, very well. So that was all I would do. I would be by myself with a whacker, with a jumping jack, just going back and forth, back and forth for thousands and thousands and thousands of linear feet of water line and sewer line. That was it. That was my entire job was just backfill and compact water line. And then we actually finished. And so they put me on a pipe crew and this maybe was, you know, it was one of the best summers of my life. It was the same story. I busted my ass. I was on an all Mexican crew again because that's Arizona. You know, anyone out in the field, anyone working is Mexican. It's just how it is out there. That's, you know, you're right there on the border and these guys come up they're, They want a better life for them and primarily their kids. And so they go out and get these jobs. And so I worked for a pipe foreman called Jose. And then I worked with a few other Mexican guys, but Jose, he was just a crazy son of a bitch. He would just, he'd just be out there, you know, yelling and he'd go just a million miles an hour. And again, I kind of learned, you know, if you just approach things with humility, these guys, they take you in, they take care of you. You're part of the family. It's, it's such a, I, you don't really get that. And it's not like a, I think it's a cultural thing. It's not a race thing. It's a cultural thing. It's the Mexican culture. It's their family, very, very family oriented. And in the United States, it's just not like that. And so you have the whole family living under one roof primarily. They have enormous family gatherings. Families are just huge. Everyone has 50 cousins and all the cousins. So that's just their culture. And so you become part of the family and they take care of you. So that's what I did. I just busted my ass. I would do whatever I was told. I would, this summer I was doing, you know, a little bit more on the technical side. So they would tell me, hey, you know, we need pipe cut to this length. So I'd grab the cutoff saw, I'd put on my chaps and I'd go cut the pipe. And man, I, I butchered the hell out of some pipe when I first started cutting pipe. It's a lot harder than the guys make it look, but uh, I would cut pipe for them. I'd make sure they had all their materials up top. I'd get in the ditch with them. I'd, I'd actually help them lay the pipe. I'd start dabbling in equipment. So I'd run, you know, the excavator. If the operator wasn't there one day, you know, swinging pipe or bagging pipe in Arizona, they require you a lot of times to put a plastic bag around the pipe, which I think is the stupidest thing in the world. But 
that's what they do. So you have to pick up the pipe, the excavator, two guys, you know, wrestle the plastic around the, the pipe and then, and then you string it out and, it, and lay it. So I would run the excavator doing that. I would run the loader stringing pipe out or uh, backfilling or dropping off bedding material. And it was awesome. I, I worked at a bunch of different job sites and had a lot, a lot of fun. Um, it was tough, very mentally challenging. I wanted to scream and yell at people a lot of times because they would, I think, intentionally try to piss you off and, and just see where your breaking point was. Um, but up until that point, it was the best summer of my life. I had more fun. I, I loved those guys. I loved working on a pipe crew. I loved working for Jose. And, you know, after that, he'd call me every few months and, you know, tell me to come to his house for, you know, they'd, oh yeah, we just, you know, butchered a pig in, in kind of broken English. And I'd show up there and yep, yeah, sure. Shit. They were cutting up a pig and just cooking it in a big vat. And I was like, what am I doing? But I, I, I just fell in love with those people. They're just salt of the earth humans. So that was summer number two with Markham Contracting. So I got to my sophomore year of college and I'd already worked uh, for two construction companies and my sophomore year, I dabbled with Markham. So I would work, you know, weekends if I could, you know, running an excavator backfilling or doing just odds and ends here and there. And that was a lot of fun. But the guy that kind of took me under my, uh, under his wing at Markham, he and, and other folks said, if you're serious about this industry, if you really do want to start a construction company yourself, because that really was my goal from the beginning, I wanted my own construction company. You're going to need to get into management. You're going to need to see how the other side works. You're going to need to see how the money comes together and the, the schedule comes together and the materials and, and all that comes together in the office and not out, you know, in the ditch, so to speak. So reluctantly, I said, okay, I guess I'll get a job as a project engineer intern. And I saw a company at the career fair, Skanska. They are, you know, multi-billion dollar international construction firm. And they were hiring interns for the upcoming summer. I applied, I interviewed, I got to basically just, you know, their VP or whoever it was, we just kind of I was able to shoot the shit with them because I just worked for two construction companies. I had a very basic understanding of the industry and I was able to somewhat speak his language at that point, even though I was just, I couldn't even legally have a beer yet. So they said, all right, come on down. And um, by the way, we're sending you out to the railroad. And I didn't know that until I got there on my first day. So it was the summer after my sophomore year of college and they said, all right, buddy. Uh, yeah, so you're going to go out to the railroad. And I said, okay, where's that? And they said, well, it's in California. And I said, okay, so I guess I'm going to California this summer. What, you know, where in California? Well, Southern California. I said, okay, this is pretty damn cool. And it, uh, they weren't, they weren't kidding. It was Southern California, but it was just outside of Glamis, California. And anyone that knows of Glamis knows it for what it's famous for, you know, around Thanksgiving, Christmas, 
It's all the sand dunes out there. It's a kick-ass place to be in the winter. People are just ripping around on dirt bikes and dune buggies and having a damn good time drinking beer, getting drunk. It's just a great place to be. But in the summer, it is the absolute worst place in the country. It's, you know, 115, 120 degrees, absolutely nothing out there. Closest gas station, you know, 50 miles away. And we were in the middle of nowhere working on the railroad. And that's the nature of the railroad. You're very rarely in downtown of a city. No, you're out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So we were working for Union Pacific Railroad and I would drive out there and I would, you know, it was probably two or three hours from my house. I would stay in the hotel that all the other managers stayed at and it was in Yuma, Arizona. And every morning we would wake up at 2.30 and drive the hour, hour and a half out into the middle of absolute nowhere. And we had a job trailer out there, a generator to power the job trailer And we were building railroad bridges. So the railroads, most people don't understand how important the railroads are in the United States, but they're arguably some of the most important infrastructure we have. And the railroads are absurdly profitable, crazy profitable because they are legal monopolies. Um, They've been there for hundreds of years. And other than, you know, the trucking companies, and they do compete with trucks a little bit, No one can compete with them. The railroads, rare they don't really compete with one another all that much. They have their routes. It's by far the cheapest way to send bulk goods like coal and shipping containers and grain and oil and cars and and all kinds of fun stuff that that really is kind of the the heart of our economy. I didn't know any of this before. I, I, I didn't even know railroads were still a damn thing. Most people still don't understand how important they are. So we go out to Union Pacific Railroad, and because they're so important, they're investing a lot in their infrastructure. And by a lot, I mean billions and billions of dollars per year. And it's all it's all their money. So the railroads invest their own money in their own infrastructure, whereas trucks, they don't invest money in the highway system. The highway system is paid for by the government, so it's a little different in that regard. So they spend their own billions of dollars upgrading their network. And Union Pacific Railroad, just before we got out there, had built a whole brand new main line for a billion dollars from Los Angeles to Texas. So a second track alongside an existing track. And they had trains running on there. And the old track had all the existing bridges still there. So every few miles, there would be a small bridge for drainage purposes for water to run underneath the track. That was built, you know, around 1910, 1915, way back out of wood. And they were just piles of shit, but you had these enormous freight trains still running over them to this day and they needed those gone. So they replaced most of them with culverts, but some of them needed to be bridges because the culverts could not keep up with the flow rate, the capacity, the, the water that was expected underneath during storm events. Now we're in the middle of the desert, so we didn't ever see that water, but apparently it does show up, you know, maybe once a year. So that was our job. We drove out there, we'd wake up at two 30, we'd be out there by four and we would work. I would work most, most of the days, you know, till four or five in the railroad. It's a unique schedule. The railroad runs seven days a week. 
it never shuts down. And so they gave us windows of, I think it was eight or nine day windows where they would shut the one track down while pushing all existing trains to the other track. That was just 10 feet from where we were working. So we had, you know, it was a live track just 10 feet from where we were working. So freight trains were tearing past us at 65 miles an hour. This track was one of the busiest main lines in the United States. So it would be for Union Pacific, it'd be 100, 120 trains a day. And they would rip through there at 65 miles an hour, just feet from where we were supposed to be replacing bridges at. It was, uh, it was an experience to say the least. So th- they would shut the track down. Union Pacific crews would come in, they would cut the track and then they'd turn it over to us and they'd say, all right, Skanska, you have eight days. The clock is ticking and we would work 24 hours a day and around the clock to get these bridges done. We would demo the old bridge. So we'd rip out all the old existing lumber, discard it somewhere. And then the survey crew would come in, lay out exactly where the piles need to be driven. And my specific task was counting the blows on the pile driving operation. And anyone that's done that knows that it, it just, it sucks. There's no way around it. So I was trained up maybe 30 minutes, explained, all right, this is how you do it. And what you do is, so, so the bridge foundation was, was piles, steel H pile that was just whacked into the ground. So we'd have a crane and, and a pile hammer. And what I would do, so they, you'd have the pile crew there, they'd get the pile squared away, and they'd start whacking it. And every 12 inches, every foot on the pile was a little white dot. And every 10 feet was you know, 10. And then the next 10, 20. The next 10, 30. And they were 40, maybe 45 foot piles. So it would, you'd have markings on the side of the pile. I would sit there with a stopwatch and I would count how many blows it took per foot and then how many blows per minute were going on as well. And so they'd ramp up the hammer all the way up to, you know, the max setting and and drive the shit out of this pile and most of the piles had to be, so we'd drive the piles during the day. I'd go to bed, wake up again, start driving again four or five in the morning after they'd welded on another pile overnight. You know, the welders worked overnight and then we'd drive them home. Usually 60 ish feet it would take to get to what was called bearing capacity. And I would be the guy in charge of determining what bearing capacity was. And I was basically just given this enormous spreadsheet. And on one column was blows per foot. And on the other column was blows per minute. And you had a kind of like a green area. And once the blows per foot and the blows per minute kind of aligned, that told you that, yep, that pile has been driven far enough. And I would say, okay, guys, that one's done. I'd record my measurements and we'd go on to the next one. I got next to very little training, and it was very important that they were driven to bearing capacity because if they weren't driven far enough, they would just settle over time, and you would have massive problems on mainline Union Pacific track. And if they were driven too far, you'd just be sitting there with the pile hammer, ruining the end of the H pile and wasting lots and lots of money. So it was an important job, but it was also just tedious, And if you've ever been around a pile hammer, extremely loud. I'd be wearing earplugs 
and earmuffs, and I'd still go home with my ears ringing every day. And it was 120 degrees. So it was brutal. And then you'd get there at four in the morning, you know, on a Saturday, and you'd open up Instagram or Snapchat. All my friends would be out dicking around, drinking, partying, having a damn good time as college kids. And I'd be sitting out there in the middle of the desert by Glamis, California, ready to go drive more pile. It was an adventure. And we'd be trying to do our job. Like I said, freight trains were still rolling through. So we'd have guys called flaggers. Everyone would have a satellite radio because we were so far out that normal radios wouldn't really work. We'd all have satellite radios. And the flagger would tell us when trains were coming and would say, hey, we have a train on the way 10 minutes away. We have another train 27 minutes away. And then we have another train that's a Z train, which is the real important ones, 45 minutes away. So every time a train would come away, you'd have to walk away from the tracks. And so a lot of times we'd get the leads, we'd get the pile positioned just right. Son of a bitch, a train's coming through. And then you just have to leave it. And then you'd have to redo all your, all your work after the train flies through. And let me tell you, it's terrifying being that close to a train. Absolutely terrifying. So that's what I did my third summer. I sat there and watched metal sticks get whacked into the ground, but it was cool because it was so fast paced. We would, you know, one day we'd be demoing the bridge. The next day we'd be driving pile. The next day we'd be driving them home. The next day we'd be setting the caps. And then the next day we'd be setting the precast bridge pieces. Then the next day we'd be placing the ballast, placing the track. I mean, it was just nonstop. So every work window, we would be, you know, building a bridge or two if they were small. And then we'd have a seven day period off and the guys, all the people working out there would have it off, but the management would still be there. So beyond just tracking pile and this and that, I was tracking quantities. I was tracking production. I was tracking the actual financial side of the project. I was making sure that, yep, we're on track as far as budget goes. Yep, we're on track as far as schedule goes. Yep, we have our materials coming when we need them. It all is going to plan. And the project went very well. So I'd spend a lot of time in the office just making sure everything was organized. And then a lot of time in the field, primarily around the the pile driving, but also just the project as a whole. So that is where I'm going to stop on this episode. There's a lot more to talk about, but I don't really want to sit here for three hours today and talk about all this. So I'm all talked out. If you made it this far, I genuinely do appreciate it. And hopefully it gives you a little bit more color as far as where I came from, what my background looks like. I just talked about my first job, my second job. So my time as a laborer, how I even got involved in being a laborer in the first place. And then my first foray into management and the number side of construction. And this was when I was 20. So next time around, I'll talk about Kiwit. I'll talk about drill and blast. I'll talk about how, um, you know, graduation and, and getting involved in the industry after school. And then I'll talk about the beginning of BuildWit. So I, I appreciate you tuning in, all three of you. And stay tuned for the next episode of the Aaron Witt Chronicles, where I talk about my experiences in the construction industry. Hopefully this is valuable. If I just wasted 47 minutes of your time, I am sincerely sorry. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening.